the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Israel takes out a key Hamas leader in Lebanon. Israel basically eliminated its equivalent of Qasem Soleimani. We'll take a closer look. He is the coordinator between Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranian-Iraqi militias and Syrian militias, and Tehran. Republicans in the House are pressing the administration on the border crisis. I think this is a massive, massive threat to U.S. national security. And Claudine Gay, former president of Harvard, is now out. She's made a career of getting special treatment on the basis of her race and gender and insidiously accusing institutions and people of being racist. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com and follow me on Twitter, please, at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll begin in the Middle East, where on Tuesday night this past week, an Israeli strike took out Salah al-Aruri in Beirut. Aruri was one of the major leaders in Hamas and a key liaison with Iran and Hezbollah. John Solomon turned to Walid Fares, a Middle East advisor to former President Trump. A lot of things have happened in the last couple of days. I want to start with the strikes yesterday and today. Yesterday, Israel killed one of the Hamas leaders who led the raids on the kibbutz, some of the most heinous crimes we've seen in a long time. And then today, Israel killed Saleh al-Warari, one of the founders of Hamas's military wing, very close to Iran. Two very big strikes, two big losses for Iran back to back, right? Absolutely. This is a major strike. I have tweeted already that Israel basically eliminated the equivalent, its equivalent, of Qasem Soleimani, who was eliminated by uh, by the Trump administration uh, in 2020. And it was, uh, you know, they attacked him with a drone. He was hiding within the security perimeter of Hezbollah. So I can see this as two messages, one to Hamas, that your leaders, and this one in particular, who are all over the region under the protection of Iran's militias, cannot be spared. And even if you are sitting inside uh, Hezbollah's quarter, that is the second message to Hezbollah. But more important, he is the commander of all Hamas forces outside Gaza. And even more important, he is the coordinator between Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iranian-Iraqi militias and Syrian militias, and Tehran. So he is de facto, was de facto the Soleimani of the region, and the Israelis had to eliminate him because he actually, and, and now social media is reporting this by the Hamas supporters, he was the one who coordinated the whole operation of October 7. Wow. That is a huge strike, a huge loss for Iran and Hamas, a big win for Israel. There's another thing going on, and I saw a couple of reports on this over the last few weeks. The number of internal executions in Iran at an eight-year high. It appears that Iran and the Mullahs are very concerned internally about their stability and security. They're executing a lot more agitators or people who oppose the regime. Is that concerning? And also, what's driving it? 
Well, that's a great question. Um, and the Iranian opposition figures are now starting to explain what's going on. Unfortunately, the administration here and the European governments are not really taking care of that situation. But nevertheless, one of the four reasons that Iran ordered Hamas to conduct a, um, a genocidal operation, really, against the Israelis on October 7, one of the reasons, the other reasons we've spoken about, we're going to continue to talk about Iran, Saudi rapprochement was one reason, uh, obviously uh, attacking American troops in Syria and Iraq. There are many reasons. One major reason was to drive the attention of world opinion from what's happening inside Iran, meaning the revolt against the Iran regime, onto Gaza. You look at the media and you are in the heart of the media. All the discussions, all the debates are about what's going to happen between Israel and, and Gaza. The question is, what is happening now inside Iran is that the regime is taking advantage of this inattention and they are systematically, systematically executing young people, male, female from different communities, Kurds, Iranians, etc., because they will take advantage of that moment to really eliminate the leaders and to really eliminate the voices inside Iran. So by the time there will be solutions in the region, nobody would uprise inside Iran. So that's really Machiavellian at the end of the day. There's another major development, too, and that is um, UN saying major breach of the JCPOA, right? And Iran much, much closer to a nuclear, enough nuclear material to build a small nuclear bomb, not acting at all in good conscience, despite all of the concessions that Biden made. This is another red flag, right? Absolutely. Here, here's the deal. And I'm, I'm happy, um, you know, I have your platform to, to send messages to the, the people in, interested in America about what's happening. This is not the first time, John. The Iranian regime over many years, ha it, it's like a remote control process. They would increase the production. Oh, it's getting above 40. It's now 60. They send these panicking messages and the result of it, not actions neither by the Obama administration nor by the Biden administration. The Trump administration actually withdrew from the deal, which, is, which drove the Iranian leaders really to, 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 uh, to, to, to just be silent for four years. And once that is done, then the Biden administration will negotiate, we're going to give you money, but stop developing. That is something that is really, really strategically dangerous for us. So they are using that increase in the production of uranium to get billions and billions of dollars. And quickly, why, what are they doing with those monies? Number one, they are arming Hamas, Hezbollah, the other militias. They are, as you and I have discussed, developing influence inside the United States and in the West. Those influences may be also behind a lot of the activities by pro-Hamas uh, you know, uh, protests and other uh, actions that have been seen here. But the most important matter is they have enough cash, John, to buy a tactical nuke. Everybody's looking at the production of uranium. Guess what? They could buy it on the market, right? Yeah, they may get it. Mm. And at the end of the day, when you look back at the last two, three years of Iran policy under Joe Biden, how much responsibility does the Biden administration bear for October 7th, for what's going on in the Red Sea, all the disruption of the cargo ships? It seems as though there's a direct correlation between Biden's capitulations and Iran's bad behavior. Is that an unfair comparison for the president? Absolutely not. John, you and I discussed it. People can go back to your podcast and listen again to the warnings we've developed. I've developed and then you, you gave me the platform. Since the withdrawal, this um, reckless withdrawal from Afghanistan, 
when we empower the Taliban, Taliban means all jihadists around the world. Since our return, that's all under the Biden administration, to the table of negotiations with the Iran regime and the empowerment of that regime with billions and billions of dollars, we have delisted the Houthis. Now the Houthis are back to wreak havoc in, in the Red Sea. We have done so many wrong things that definitely these are the results, the direct results of that wrong policy, which was inherited, unfortunately, from the Obama administration years. It's just it's just stunning to watch because it's so common sense. I mean, anyone that looked at said, all right, why are we going to arm people that chant death to the America? Why would we give cash to them? Why would we look the other way? Why would we take someone we know is involved in terrorist activity, take them off and delist them? And uh, people were scratching their heads. But now the answer is whatever the why is, the outcome is it's made the world so much more unsafe on, on almost every platform I can think of right now. You just look around and Iran is far more bold in its assault on freedom, assault on stability in the world. Do you see any evidence that the Biden administration, it could be something as crass as, hey, we got an election coming up. We better tighten up for a while. Do you see any changes in their approach? Uh, it seemed as though there was some discussion just before Christmas. Maybe they would put the hoodies back on the terrorism list, but a little bit off a little late for that action. But do you see any evidence that the Biden administration may try to make a leap to a different location on their strategy right now? Logically, John, they should. If I am advising them, which I am not, obviously, I would tell them, look, you have one year to correct the wrongs. One year. And that's the election year. And if I was advising them, you would win if you would change. But it looks like the administration is really sinking into an internal political warfare. The Iran regime, the Iran deal lobby is pressuring them. No, do not change your policy with regard to Iran. And then we investigated a little bit analytically and my book as well, because somebody is making money here because there are financial interests who are profiting from us sending billions of dollars to Iran. So definitely they're going to be pressuring the, uh, the, the Biden administration. On the other hand, obviously, Congress is not happy. There is a whole wing of the Democratic Party now that is not happy since October 7. Even in Hollywood, you see people who are saying, what are we doing? So they are divided. And I don't know if they have the right advisors to uh, advise uh, President uh, Biden to change course. That is a question I cannot answer. We'll see in the next few months. Yeah, now it is a head scratcher. There was a tragic episode in Rochester, New York, I think initially investigated as terrorism right now. It doesn't appear to be as clearly a clear link to terrorism, but a gentleman with a lot of uh, gas canisters in his car crashes into a concert venue. A subtle reminder that there are a lot of actors out there looking to create harm. And we don't know a lot of people even who are in our borders anymore, what they're up to. How big a warning sign is what happened to Rochester? Even if it's not a terror attack, pretty strong warning signs that we got to be more vigilant, right? Well, actually, I was told by the FBI, people who work on these issues, that their list of suspects are really growing at 10 times fold at least since October 7. So I think that the penetration of this country has been going on in, by multiple ways, but the biggest open gate, that is the crumbling of our southern border. I mean, we see them on TV by the thousands. I'm not saying the thousands, even by dozens who would penetrate or infiltrate, and they end up in an open country, which is our dream to have an open country like this one, where they can buy anything they want. And I said, buy where the money is coming from. Well, of course, from the terrorist organizations, of course, from the Iran regime, from the brotherhood, from the cartels. I mean, you don't need to be an expert to realize that. 
I think we are at a present dangerous situation whereby there are networks of radicals on the inside of the country. This, could, this case could be terrorism or not, but this case will send a message to us that we need to take care of our southern border. It's really a national security threat. Yeah, it is. And there are just, whether it's the FBI director, retired FBI counterterrorism experts, national security experts from every wing, really even the left, uh, the left and the right now are both concerned that the border has become a liability for this entire country. There is some discussion that maybe a deal gets made in the budget to tighten things up a little bit. Your thoughts on that and how hard should Republicans hold out to get a good deal, not not just a, you know, a, a deal in name only, but a real deal? They need to be strong and get a real deal because all what they have really are those nine months to come. And in those nine months, they have to change the course of the administration and spending on things we should not be spending on and and at the same time, make sure that all our national defense, national security, but more important, let me add that one thing that to the list of things that Congress should address, the educational system. You know, we just realized over the past few months, and you had many great guests on this, uh, that educational system is responsible for the radicalization of hundreds of thousands of individuals, both who are, could be posing threats here in this country, or, or overseas. So the Republicans and some of the Democrats should get together and make sure to have a package that would respond to the national emergency we're facing. You can get John Solomon Reports podcast at the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson visits the border. It's a disaster of the president's own design. The Town Hall Review returned in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The nation starts this very new year with some serious national security threats, threats that are very close to home. Mike Johnson, our new Speaker of the House, visited the southern border this past week, where border crossings keep breaking record after record. The situation here and across the country is truly unconscionable. Our communities are overrun. We have local resources that are being strapped. We have lethal drugs that are pouring into our country at record levels. And it's in less than three years that President Biden took office that this has happened. That we have over 7 million illegal encounters at the border, nearly 2 million known gotaways, and that doesn't count the many that are undetected. 312 suspects on the terrorist watch list that have been apprehended. We have no idea how many terrorists have come into the country and set up terrorism cells across the nation. Last month alone, we saw the most illegal crossings in recorded history. It is an unmitigated disaster, a catastrophe. And what's more tragic is that it's a disaster of the president's own design. It is a crisis. I turn to Congressman Mike Gallagher. He's from Wisconsin. He's chairman of the Select Committee in the House on Engagement with the Chinese Communist Party. Eight million people have walked across our southern border in the last three years. Eight million. Do you believe any of them are agents of the Chinese Communist Party? Uh, well, first, let me caveat this by saying I, I have no 
insider info here, no intelligence one way or the other. But let me put it this way. I think this is a massive, massive threat to U.S. national security. And it would surprise me if our foremost adversary, i.e. the Chinese Communist Party, weren't seeking ways to exploit this gaping hole in our defense of the homeland. And even if you don't believe that any of these people crossing the southern border are agents of the Chinese Communist Party, what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that every single day, if not every single minute of every single day, fentanyl crosses the southern border, killing tens of thousands of Americans. And of course, the precursors for fentanyl are produced in China. But Biden bent over backwards to meet with Xi Jinping in San Francisco at the APEC summit. And all of what came out of that meeting was some vague promise to cooperate on fentanyl, to crack down on precursor production. But as yet, I've seen no evidence that the CCP is serious about cracking down on fentanyl precursor production, and it's killing tens of thousands of Americans. So these two things, the complete lack of security at our southern border and the desire of the Chinese Communist Party to help us destroy ourselves, to destroy American global leadership, are intimately connected. And if we do not secure the southern border, I cannot look you or anyone else in the eye and say that we are doing our duty when it comes to protecting the homeland or advancing our national security interests. And so that issue alone shows you why Joe Biden can't have four more years in office. The border is an unmitigated disaster, and I'm confident that our enemies are taking advantage of that fact. I know I want to add into this a second layer of issue. All right. So Claudine Gay could not denounce a pogrom as genocide and is getting a move-on package of $900,000 a year from Harvard to teach in the African-American Education Studies program at Harvard going forward. What do you think the average American in Green Bay thinks about this, Mike Gallagher? Well, it's absurd. I think your average American in Green Bay, Wisconsin, is waking up to the fact that our elite universities, the best of the best, uh, have constructed a system in which you pay them massive sums of money to propagandize your own children against you and the United States of America. Claudine Gay needed to go. But her departure is as much a symptom of the problem as it is the problem itself. Here's Victor Davis Hanson, joined with his co-host Sammy Wink from his podcast. Dr. Claudine Gay apparently has more plagiarism that has been found. This is really egregious um, that she's taking of other people's work. And I was wondering, I know you had a few more things you wanted to say about that. Well, I think now of her 11 articles with the latest disclosure, she's up to 60% of everything she's written has borrowed language. What's the word they use for it? Duplicative. Duplicative language. So they don't use the word plagiarism for her. They kick people out otherwise and do call them plagiarists, but not her. I guess this is the age of the great plagiarist Joe Biden that has normalized plagiarism. But there's accusations she plagiarized her Ph.D. thesis parts of it. So from the very beginning, when I first got to Hoover, she was up for tenure at the political science department with four articles, which no one ever gives tenure for, for four articles at supposedly an elite university, but she got it. So what I'm getting at is she's made a career of 
two things. One, getting special treatment on the basis of her race and gender not accorded to other people. And two, serially, insidiously accusing institutions and people of being racist or sexist. And that is the trajectory that the DEI candidate has today. You have to do two things. You have to accuse people 24-7 of being racist or sexist, homophobe, transphobe, and then you have to be in that protected class as a victim. Do that, and you can plagiarize. You can tell the world that if you call for the destruction of Israel or the destruction of the Jewish people at Harvard, there's going to be no consequences. And that's what she's done. And Harvard... 17% 17% in early applications, usually early applications, you know, applications for early admittance, those are the more motivated or the stronger candidates who feel that their dossiers are so strong in the old days before the rejection of the SAT or the ab- abolition of it. Those were the people who got the perfect SAT scores or near perfect, the perfect GPA, and they just wanted to get it over with and get their admission. 17% dropped? And so she is lording over the veritable destruction of Harvard University. Like Yale, about 80% of the people get A's, and they have to get A's because they are admitted uh, with qualifications that will not allow them to do the work as it has been expected institutionalized until about five years ago. So you get a whole new group of students who have never taken the SAT test, their GPA, you don't, know how, you don't know how to evaluate it, and the essay, and their race and gender. And then you expect them to do the, the traditional work that you've bragged about was so difficult? No. No, you've, made, you've inflated your grades. And the, the icon of that would be the president of Harvard herself, who can't meet the standards that she applies to students. If she was a student... And she had duplicative language or emulative language. He would be kicked out or put on suspension, guaranteed. And so everybody knows that. And we know that Larry Summers was fired for suggesting there were biological differences between men and women that might account for our cultural differences that might account in the proportional underrepresentation of women in physics and math. And we know the South Carolina president, university was fired for, what, lifting two paragraphs in a graduation speech, but not Claudine Gay, who says that she's been singled out when we know that Liz McGill, who was next to her, was fired for saying the same thing as a white woman. I think everybody's sick of this. And as I said earlier, it's going to go Bud Light, Disney, Target very quickly. She's reigning over the destruction of the Ivy League. She really is. She doesn't even know it. Coming up. We'll look at California. We saw several hundred thousand people leaving the state of California. Dean Pete Peterson at Pepperdine when the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. 
Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. California is a border state. As such, it's no stranger to the immigration crisis we just looked at. They're also dealing with a flood of citizens, tax-paying citizens, leaving the state. And I could go on. I turn to Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. Dean, I had dinner last night with four great Californians, four very successful West Siders. They're staying. I think they're out of their minds. They're paying a 13.5% California geography tax. How long can this state deal with that when they just opened Medicaid up to every illegal immigrant in the state? Well, you know, Hugh, for many years, it was argued that California practiced what Walter Russell Meade called the blue state model, that you would pay a lot in taxes, but you'd get a lot back in services. And I think what we've seen over the last few years, you were mentioning the homelessness issue before. You can talk about public safety. You can look at the condition of our roads and infrastructure, that that nexus has been broken, that people are paying a lot in taxes Uh, Certainly in energy as well, you know, taxes on gas and uh, taxes on uh, electricity. Uh, But we're not seeing that responded back in the quality of our schools, the quality of our roads, the quality of our public service. And certainly uh, over the last couple of years, especially with COVID, when there was a chance for people to leave the state between 2021 and 2022, we saw several hundred thousand people leaving the state of California I know you've probably talked about the fact that most are predicting that in the 2030 census, we're going to lose between four and five congressional seats due to the decline in relative population. And so people are voting with their feet. Well, Dean, who is coming to your school? I still get great law students. I'm not teaching this semester. I teach every other spring semester at Chapman, but I'm only here until the primary on March 5th. I'm going back to Virginia. Who's coming to Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy? Because if you want an intractable public policy environment, that's here. You're going to learn how to deal with the hardest stuff. But, I mean, who wants to do that? Well, importantly, we are continuing to offer a very unique graduate policy degree here. So we are getting students from outside the state, some who uh, really do believe that they're going to go back to either their home states or back to Washington, D.C., working Capitol Hill. Uh, But because of the unique kind of graduate program that we offer here, uh, frankly, I think every Californian should spend at least a year in California to understand uh, how the other side thinks when it comes to public policy. But we also still have young people here in the state that want to be here for the turnaround. They want to be here uh, for the uh, for the change that I believe many see in coming that we are, as you said before, on an unsustainable path when it comes to public policy coming out of Sacramento and coming out of our major cities. And we do have a number of native Californians that are coming here because they want to be a part of that turnaround in our cities and our state. Uh, You know, Dean, I know you're nonpartisan, but I see Steve Garvey is in second place in the California primary for Senate. That would be a great boon if there was actually someone at the top of the ticket running as a Republican. Do you expect him to make it into the final two? Yeah, I do. Uh, Certainly when you look at the Democratic side, it's one of those situations where even though it's a top two primary uh, down party lines, people are going to split the vote on the Democratic side, which provides an opportunity for the Republicans, especially a name 
recognize Republican like a Steve Garvey to make it through. I think Republicans are uh, we aren't we haven't always been smart as a party. And I see that say that as a registered Republican here in the state of California to clear the field. Uh, but I think we're doing that in the Senate race and, and certainly putting uh, Steve Garvey forward as the lead Republican candidate gives him a great chance to get through the primary and onto a general in which there really should be a debate about the future of uh, both state policy and national policy. Last question, Dean Peterson. I mentioned the new California state law. Medicaid in California is now available to anyone. No matter how long they've been here, they might have just walked over the California border on in uh, eastern San Diego County or come over from Arizona or Texas. How in the world does the state intend not only to pay for it, but to provide it? That That's eight million people in three years. I don't know where they're going to go. Yeah, you know, Hugh, the immigration problem is becoming a much bigger problem for the Democrats. I, I'm sure you've covered the stories that the uh, Customs and Border Patrol are actually bringing over busloads of illegal immigrants and dumping them essentially on the streets of our cities in San Diego and Los Angeles and San Francisco. These are coming out of the Democratic administration. These are not being sent by red state governors. This is CBP dropping off people that the cities aren't even notified that they're coming in, much less having this guarantee now from the governor that we are going to provide these public services. Coming up, we will return to Israel. There's a sense that particularly the October 7th massacre brought up the worst memories from Jews. Dan Senor in the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Israel is no stranger to war. Since the founding of the modern state in 1948, Israelis have had a steady stream of wars and terrorist uprising against them. But there is a sense among Israelis that this war is different. October 7th and the massacre that Hamas perpetrated in Israel changed everything. I turn to Dan Senor of the Call Me Back podcast, the author of The Genius of Israel. 
everybody's going to funerals around the clock in Israel. And I, I believe Americans love their country the equal of any people in the world love their country. But Israelis might love Israelis more than any other people love each other. What do you think about that? It's a small country. It is, uh, it is a country where everybody knows everybody, or everybody's one degree removed from everybody. And there's a sense that particularly the October 7th massacre brought up the worst memories from Jews, even though Israel is a very diverse country. Over 70 nationalities are represented in Israel. So you have Jews from the United States and Europe. You have Jews from Iran, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Morocco, Turkey. You have Jews from the former Soviet Union. Um, so they've all, in a sense, lived these different histories, but they've all suffered from persecution no matter where they live. You have a Jew from Poland and a Jew from Baghdad. They've both lived under brutal repression for being Jews. And so October 7th touched a nerve for everybody in Israel, even though many of them have come from different places and have had different experiences. They, 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 they were all reminded about this, um, this hate towards Jews that has existed throughout our history and the lengths those people who hate will go to massacre, to extinguish, to exterminate Jews. That was October 7th, like touched a visceral nerve in ways that, that just brought back memories and brutal history. And so in that sense, there's an added layer of the country feeling very unified and feeling together. And my, my sister who lives in Jerusalem, who I just spoke to late last night, my time, early morning, her time, I mean, this is what she does. She goes to funerals. She goes to shivas, which are the seven-day mourning period for those families who have just lost a loved one. Um, Haviv, in our last episode of the podcast, said he's been to five funerals. That's actually, i got to be honest, Hugh, that's on the low end. Most most Israelis I know um, are, are going to many more. Uh, and it touches every walk of life. The CEO of one of the biggest high-tech companies in the country, his daughter was killed at the Nova Music Festival on October 7th. He's a billionaire. Uh, Lior Raz and Avi Sakharov, who are the co-creators of the television show Fauda, they're big deals in the television world globally. They have a big deal with Netflix. They, their stars have. Uh, uh, Lior Raz just got back from Malta, shooting uh, a, a big film, uh, big big you know um, Hollywood film in in Malta. He just got back to Israel. Members of their crew from Fauda, from their production crew, have been killed. Uh, they're going to funerals. It's not. In the United States, most of our country is protected from military service and from war. It is, as you know, represents a minuscule percentage of the overall population. It's the opposite in Israel. Everyone in Israel is touched in some way, whether it's their own service, their children's service, a friends, a teachers, a shopkeepers, a brother. They're all touched by it. And so when 360,000 people out of a population of 9.1 million people are mobilized on top of those who are slaughtered on October 7th and on top of the hostages and on top of the rape survivors, everyone somehow knows someone. Dan, prior to 73, there was a conception in Israel that they could not be surprised. They were. I wonder if Fauda and other shows contributed to a new conception that is now shattered, that they would never be surprised and that the number of terrorists who could enter into the country could never get larger than the, the Hanak Tel Aran attack on the Haifa Highway or the other attacks in 73 that you detailed yesterday with Habib. Do you think that was an illusion that spread out over Israel? 
Yeah, I think the combination. I think that there there are many uh, misconceptions in the conceptia and the concept. Uh, one of which was that uh, Hamas in Gaza wanted to govern rather than to wage war. There was a sense that yeah, their 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 rhetoric is toxic. Their rhetoric is is um, radical. But at the end of the day, they they have a population of 2.2 million people to run, and that's what they're focused on, not waging war against Israel. Is Waging war against Israel would be a distraction from developing and running Gaza. That was one big misconception. The second big misconception was the biggest threat to Israel from Gaza were rockets, not terrorists crossing the border. So if you look at the bomb shelters, so almost every Israeli home has a bomb shelter, apartment buildings. Homes. I mean, my family members all have bomb shelters in their buildings or their homes. This is a common thing. And and people in Israel are trained from a very young age how to get into the bomb shelter, depending on where in the country you are. When a rocket is launched from Gaza or from the north, you have, if you're in the center of the country, you have about 12 or 15 minutes to get to your bomb shelter. If you live in the south of the country in Gaza and in, in um, Sterot, you have 15 seconds uh, to get into the bomb shelter. But these, But it is very common to know to run to the bomb shelters. None of the bomb shelters had locks on the doors. I mean, that's very revealing. And that's a very powerful symbol, very powerful metaphor. Why is that? On October 7th, when the Hamas terrorists came in, all these kids, for instance, at the Nova Music Festival or on these kibbutzim, they ran into their bomb shelters. That's what they were trained to do. And that was played right into Hamas's hands because they could then throw grenades into the bomb shelter. They could just walk into the bomb shelter, open the door and just start shooting and slaughtering people live. And people say, well, wait a minute, why weren't there locks in the pot? Why couldn't we close the doors and lock the doors? Because the whole national security concept, conceptualization of the threat was we just need to be in the bomb shelters for when the rockets hit. No one ever thought about hand-to-hand combat and terrorists actually going door-to-door and slaughtering people live the way those 2,000 terrorists tried to do and did do on October 7th. And that there are so many – Hugh, there are so, I'm going to start dedicating in, in my podcast in the future some episodes to – the lessons learned. And what I'm trying to do right now in the podcast is focus on educating people on the history of what Israel has been dealing with, because I find there's such a uh, deficiency in the level of knowledge that regular, even smart, intelligent people have about the history. So what I'm trying to focus on now is just the basic history. Dan, you introduced me to Daniel Gordis, and I got his book, Israel, The Rebirth of a Nation Reborn. Concise history of a of a nation reborn. I've listened to it two and a half times because I knew everything from seventy three forward, and I knew it pretty well. I didn't know much about forty eight to seventy three. I read the Lions Gate by Stephen Pressfield a little bit about that. I knew nothing about Theodore Herzl to nineteen forty eight. Coming up, Israeli resilience, and what they need to understand is, I'm not going anywhere. A few more minutes with Dan Senor. In the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, when we return. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. 
A few minutes ago, I noted how the attack from Hamas on October 7th changed everything. Israel recognized on that day that they couldn't live next door to a Gaza under Hamas control any longer. Let's pick up with my conversation with Dan Senor, host of the Call Me Back podcast. We're picking up on our conversation about Habib Redigor of the Times of Israel. I'm an average, smart American reader of these things. So the, the great benefit of Call Me Back are the people you bring on. Haviv is not my age. He's not, he's not anybody of your listeners' age. He's a young man with young kids. He's got to live in Israel for 50 years. It's got to have changed everyone, right? Look, one of the th- Haviv is a very special person, as you know, and I know you've had him on. I, I, he and I have become quite close. He's, uh, he's special because he's, he's obviously deeply intelligent. He's, got a, he's a sharp analyst, and he's got a tremendous sense of history, and he's a soulful person. He's living his life in Israel. He's raising his children in Israel. He has family members serving on the front lines. He himself has served. Um, and so we try to do this weekly conversation to almost be like an audio journal for both of us since October 7th. We recorded our first episode of these weekly war check-ins since on October 8th. And I would say his biggest frustration, which he gets into in our most recent episode, the one you're referring to, and even our previous ones, is he says, the Palestinians don't have to love me. They don't have to be Zionists. They don't have to believe in Israel, but they need to understand me. That's his big point. And what they need to understand is I'm not going anywhere. And I'm raising my kids to understand they're not going anywhere. This is their country. So you, you, you can be as angry about that fact as you are, but you have to deal with that fact. And so much of the palace, talk about Israel's misconception. Let's talk about the Palestinians' misconception, their conceptual conceptia. Their misconception was that they could, with enough pressure and violence and intimidation and October 7th slaughtering and rape, they could drive the Jews out. They could go somewhere else. And Haviv's point is, where? Where are we going? We got you, no don't way you, to Don't go. you think the, they think America when he said that? They think you're, that all Israelis are going to go to America. And that's not going to happen. They built this amazing country. They're not going to leave it. Right. But I also want to talk yeah. to you about the fact that Israel's a nuclear power. At least I understand it to be. They never admit that. Before Israel ever goes down, they're not going to go out quietly. Do you think that the Sunni Arab world has communicated that to Hamas? I think these countries understand that Israel's a nuclear power. And I think Iran understands that Israel's a nuclear power. I think there's a reason why the regional actors since 1973 have not waged another war at Israel. There's a consensus across the Israeli political spectrum now, across the political spectrum, from the hard right all the way to the hard left. I mean, I talked to my Israeli friends who are literally on the high, hard, way hard left, you people I've never had an agreement with about Israeli national security policy in years. They all sound like they're singing from the same song sheet, that they have to do whatever they have to do with, to crush Hamas, period, full stop. Thank you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with you, Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com, and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Bouchon, Alex Perez, Adam Ramsey, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.